If you brought a Bible with you to church today, it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John, chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible or the battery died on your Bible, then I would welcome you to grab one from the pew in front of you. It's important to me that you are reading from the Scriptures and not just from what's on the screen ahead of, uh, ahead of me. Because I want you to know that what you're reading doesn't come from me or from anything I have typed out, but comes from the Word of God. So if you're not used to reading the Bible, you will find our passage this morning, John chapter 15, on page 901 of the Pew Bible. Page 901 on to page 902. I'll read from verse 1 down to verse 17. Then I'll pray, ask for the Lord's help, and we'll get to work. It should be 45 minutes or so. John chapter 15, starting at verse 1. This is the Word of God. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch, withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. And it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that your joy, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, The servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Will you pray with me? 
Father, apart from your Son, I can do nothing. Without your Holy Spirit's help, my words are dead words, fruitless words, unhelpful words, unconvicting words. And so I ask that you might send your Spirit to enable me, your servant, to speak what is right and true from your word. Lord, should there be something in my notes that is not in accordance with that word, I pray that you would remove it from my eyes. I pray that you would come now and through your word wash us, prune us, cause us to bear fruit, keep us connected to the vine and nourish us with his words. Do this for Jesus' sake. Amen. God has a vineyard, as we read at the call to worship. The Bible calls God's people his vineyard. In Psalm 80, the psalmist speaks of God bringing a vine out of Egypt, planting that vine where it spread. But that vine was unkept and became unfruitful. And in Psalm 80, God withdrew his protective hand. The vine was ravaged and trampled. And the psalmist cries to God for mercy that he might return to the vine he planted. Similarly, in Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet refers to God's people as a vineyard. He tells of how God cleared rocks from the ground that he planted the vineyard in. Dug irrigated rows, built a hedge around the vine, and built a tower in the middle to watch over the vine, keep it free from marauders and pests. Isaiah 5 says that God built a stone vat where the juice from the vine would ferment and turn into wine. And then God came to this vine looking for fruit, looking for grapes. But what he found was that it had not yielded grapes, but wild grapes, unfruitful wild grapes. Although God had built a vineyard perfectly, it did not yield good fruit. Isaiah goes on to explain that God let the vine go. Where he had expected to see justice on the vine, he didn't see justice. He saw bloodshed. He was looking for righteousness, but instead he found unrighteousness. And so he, as in Psalm 80, removed the hedge of protection, broke down the fence, and the vine was made to fall to waste. So when Jesus Christ comes to his disciples and says, I am the true vine, He is saying that I am the vineyard God planted that will produce the good fruit God expected from his people. He will produce the righteousness and the justice God expected from his people. He will do and be what God's people didn't and weren't. And he tells the disciples the only way that they would produce the fruits that God expected of them was that they would have to be abiding in him. This is a rich metaphor, the one one that the Lord lingers over. 
And I think that we will be helped. I pray that we would be helped to see the beauty of God in this metaphor and see that God is all the time working in and among his people for them to produce the fruits of his own righteousness by being connected, united with Christ. So the summary of my sermon this morning is this. God's people are chosen and appointed by Christ to bear lasting, God-glorifying, people-loving fruit through abiding in Him. I have three points this morning. The first is this. Jesus Christ is the vine. His people are His vineyard. So if you're following along the backside of your worship guide, you'll see this laid out in front of you. Take notes as you wish. Verse 1 through 3. Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And then he says, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. God had delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt through his miraculous power. He had destroyed the slaveholders. He had made them free. God had promised his people to give them a land of their own and that they would be his people, having a special purpose on the earth, his representation to the nations. He would make them, according to Exodus 19, an entire nation of priests through which the surrounding nations would learn about who God is. They would learn of his love. They would learn of his glory from his people. On the way to the land of promise, if you know your Bible, you remember God provided for them in miraculous ways. When they got thirsty, some homeboy hit a rock and water came out and they drank. When they got hungry, there was miracle bread on the ground in the morning. Or birds would fly above their heads and die and fall down in front of their feet and they would cook them up and eat them. God provided for them in miraculous ways. He protected them in miraculous ways. You remember he guided them through the wilderness with a cloud of fire. He dwelt among them in the tabernacle. And he gave them a leader to lead them. He even gave them his own word. Despite God's clear and visible presence, his miraculous provision, despite his own words written on tablets that they could read and see. Despite a a man who could explain God's will to them, God's people could not produce the fruits of righteousness and be the kingdom of priests he had called them to be. Even as they came into the land of promise, they began to produce wild grapes They breathed the air of the surrounding nations and gave themselves over to worshiping anything, anyone except the true God. And so God sent his own son, Jesus Christ. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus wrapped himself in human flesh and he did what Israel had not done. Jesus produced the fruits of God's righteousness. He didn't breathe the air of this world He breathed the air of God's word. And everywhere God's people had failed, God's son did not. Everything Israel had not been, Jesus was. This had been God's plan all along. 
Because through Jesus, God's people would produce the fruits of God's righteousness. God would gather his own people, both Jew and Gentile, into his son. And in him, they would produce the fruits that God had commanded them from the beginning. This is what Jesus means in verse 5 when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then Jesus explains here in the first couple of verses that it's God the Father who ensures the fruitfulness of his vineyard. Like any farmer, like any gardener, like any vine dresser, God prunes. And so we hear Jesus saying, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. And then in verse 2, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. But every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it in order that it may produce more fruit. This is a principle that will guide much of our time together this morning, which is that God removes fruitless and, pr- and prunes the fruitful branches. God removes the fruitless branches, prunes the fruitful branches, all for his glory. So that the branches that are not producing fruit, he takes them away, they're dead, they're gathered together, they're burned. But the branches that are producing fruit, he carefully prunes them so that they would bear more fruit. And here's the idea. If a person claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ, they will produce the fruit of that union. And so that it is that it is right for us to expect a Christian to act like and to think like and to talk like Jesus in some measure. This is most clearly seen in our treatment of our own sin. A Christian is one who is quick to own her own sin, to turn away from it. Because to her, the thing that sent her precious, sin is the very thing that sent her precious Savior to the cross. Sin was the thing that caused her Savior to be separated from his Father. And so she, in repentance, will gladly separate herself from that sin in her life. Claiming to be a Christian without producing the fruit of loving God. Of loving what God loves. Of hating what God hates. That, that just means that that's a dead claim. In 1 John chapter 3, the apostle writes, Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And then John goes on and explains, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Jesus or known Jesus. He's not saying that a Christian does not sin. He's saying that a Christian does not remain in his sin. He does not make peace with it. To do so would mean that he's not really in Christ at all. He's a fruitless dead branch that will be cut off. The Lord goes on and says that every branch that does bear fruit is pruned. Pruning is strange business. It feels counterproductive. I don't know if you've ever seen an arborist at work, but often it feels like he's killing the tree. It sure seems like he's cutting off too much. And as you watch him work, you see 
branches coming off of the tree which have lots of leaves on them. But he knows, because of his training, that he must not only cut off the dead offshoots from the tree, but also some of the healthy ones too, for the sake of the health of the whole branch or the whole tree. Sometimes it's necessary to cut away healthy shoots that are superfluous and unnecessary. God prunes the fruitful branches in order that they would produce more fruit. Now, just as a a sort of parenthetical statement, he does this with his word. I don't know if you caught this. It feels a little disjointed. It feels like Jesus is is, uh, talking this metaphor of vine and branches. Then he hits a pause in verse 3, and then he returns to it in verse 4. If you look at this, there is this interesting connection between verse 2 and 3. He says verse 20 and 2, every branch that doesn't bear fruit takes away. Every one that does bear fruit, he prunes. But then he says, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. And then verse 4, he goes back into this branch metaphor. So it sort of feels out of place. And the reason is, is because we're reading this in English. In the original, the word clean and the word prune are the same word. So it's as if Jesus is saying the way that God prunes, the way that he cleans is with his word. So he's saying those branches that bear fruit, God will prune that it may bear more fruit. Already you are pruned because of the word that I've spoken to you. And this is because you and I, people who are attempting by God's grace to serve him well and serve him faithfully, we are a people of divided affections. We are easily distracted and easily drawn away from what matters most. And so God will send his word to prune us, to prune our divided affections, to clean our muddy affections, and to disaffect us from lesser joys in order that he may deepen the the, the more important joys. Here's how it works in my life. The Lord in his mercy through his word, will cut away sinful affections in my heart. And I'm so thankful for those wounds. But more often, things that render my life unfruitful are not sinful things. They're just, they're just wasteful things. If I'm not careful, my affections for God will be muddied by sports, by entertainment, by hunting, by hobbies, none of which are inherently sinful, not at all. In fact, some of them are good. They, do, they are useful for my fruitfulness. But when they occupy too much of my heart, then the Lord must prune them back. A few weeks ago, I was encouraged by a conversation with a brother who recently told me he had ended a hobby of his that had been dear to him for many years. But he had found it to be distracting and it hindered his fruitfulness in the Lord. In fact, this last Wednesday, a brother in my Living Stones group asked for prayer for this upcoming hunting season in order that hunting wouldn't take away from the affection of, toward God and faithfulness towards God in his life. That may sound very silly, it may sound strange, but if it does, it's probably because you don't know how easily divided your affections can be. Those brothers are seeking to honor the Lord in order that they may love him with all of their heart, not just most of it. 
In Mark chapter 4, when Jesus is explaining the parable of the sower, he explains three things that will render the fruit of his word unfruitful, the seed of his word unfruitful in our life. Three things he mentions from Mark chapter 4. He says, the cares of this world, so worry, anxiety, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. Not sinful things, just other things. They'll enter in and choke the word and it will prove unfruitful. I pray the Lord would show us grace and make us exegetes of our own heart, know our own affections and see where they're being drawn away by worry, by the lies of riches and by the desires for other things. So the Father comes into our life and he comes with his holy scissors and he prunes. Of course, it's painful. Of course, it feels counterproductive. But it is for our fruitfulness and it is for our good. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 10 says, The Lord disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. I wonder how much of our distress is due to the Lord's own loving, pruning, disciplining hand. All week long, I have wondered how often I have asked for deliverance from the very thing my God was using to prune me in order that I would bear more fruit. If we don't understand this principle of pruning, Don't you see how easily we will mistake the Lord's own hand for the devil? We will call the devil's affliction what is actually the Lord's loving pruning. Remember the Apostle Paul's experience of a thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. Just listen to how Paul describes his own affliction. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Friends, the Lord sent a messenger from Satan to harass Paul, to keep him from the sin of conceit and to produce in him the fruit of trusting Christ in his weakness. God willed Paul to suffer, to protect him from the sin of conceit in order to produce the fruit of contentment. In weakness, contentment in insults, contentment in hardship, contentment in persecutions, contentment and calamity. All of those things, I'm sure at one point or another, I have asked God to deliver me from. 
There are plenty of folks that would have you believe that God does not will His people to endure suffering or sickness. And I hope that you see that this is just the spirit of the age. This is just the language of people who sleep in comfortable beds, climate-controlled homes, with full refrigerators, who use clean water to flush their toilets. I hope that you see that this is just an easy way to sell books and hold conferences. It's unbiblical. It's out of step with church history. It's out of step with modern history across the world. And it leaves God's people spiritually anemic. The next time that you and I feel the sharp pain of suffering and affliction, we would do well to remember that God is still in control. That God is not absent in our pain and that we would submit ourselves to God in the difficulty and trust that he would bring forth God-glorifying fruit as we trust him, trust his provision, trust in, in his providence. And remember that we might just be under the knife. And we would understand that this wound that we're suffering at God's own hand is from his careful scalpel as he lovingly removes from us things that are unnecessary, leading us to produce more fruit for his glory and our good. Second point, how fruitful branches bear fruit. We see this in verse four through eight. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Again, Jesus says, God removes the fruitless and prunes the fruitful for his glory. True disciple is the one who is a true branch on the true vine that produces true fruit to God's glory. But the question is, how exactly does a branch produce fruit? And Jesus answers, by abiding in the vine. Abide in the vine. The word abide is a, it's a, it's an unusual word. When was the last time you used the word abide in a sentence? It means, Jesus uses it 11 times here, so we should probably understand what it means. It means remain, stay, continue in. Jesus is saying a branch cannot bear fruit by itself only if it's continuing in, remaining in the vine. Only if it stays connected. If it doesn't stay connected to the vine, to the central feed of nourishment, then it's not going to produce fruit. And Jesus says it'll be a fruitless branch. It'll be cut off, gathered, and burned. Jesus is saying that we cannot produce the fruits of the kingdom apart from life in him. Apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. A branch must draw its nutrients from the vine, from that central trunk, because only then can it produce fruit. Do you see how revolutionary a statement that is? 
Jesus is saying that what is necessary to be right before God in order to please God, in order to go to heaven, cannot be produced on one's own. It only comes with union in him. So there is no good deed, no act of justice, nothing done apart from union in Christ that will ever produce the fruits of real righteousness. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm very glad that you came today. I want you to know what Jesus is telling you here. You're probably thinking that you're a good person. And I suspect by all of our categories and definitions, you truly are a good person. I don't doubt that at all. Except God wants you to know that apart from Jesus in your life, you cannot produce the fruits of righteousness to get into heaven. But the good news is you don't have to. By turning away from your life of sin and trusting in Jesus, you can be connected to the vine and you can begin to produce the fruits of righteousness and that you can go to heaven. As Corey Breath is fond of saying, we are saved by good works, just not our good works. Through turning away from living for ourselves and following Jesus, you can be made right with God and go to heaven. In verse 5, Jesus says, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. I think the Lord has been crystal clear here in chapter 14 and in, in chapter 15 that what God requires of his people is this obedience to his commandments. I don't think you can read John 14 and John 15 and come away with a different conclusion. I don't think you can read these two chapters and think God really doesn't care about keeping his commandments. I think Jesus made that very clear. I think Jesus also made it very clear that none of us are capable of producing that obedience on our own. Our resolve might be strong, but not strong enough. Our desire might be good, but not good enough. And the good news is, is that we were never meant to do it on our own. Jesus has already done everything that was needed to be made right before God. So that when we are united to Jesus, we enjoy the benefits of his righteousness working through us, his good fruit producing in us. And so we produce the fruit of God's righteousness by one means only, our connection to Christ. An old Anglican preacher, J.C. Ryle, is helpful here. He wrote, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant, close communion with Jesus, to be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him, and using him as our fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion and best friend. What Ryle is saying is something very similar to what Jesus says in verse 7. Abiding in Christ means having his word abide in you. That close, constant communion that Ryle refers to happens by spending time in his word. We hear our Savior speak to us through 
the Scriptures, as we apply ourselves to understand the Bible, applying the Scripture to ourselves, it cleanses us, prunes us, causes us to bear fruit. When you open your Bible and read, study, meditate on God's Word, when you memorize God's Word, God is pruning you, clean, cleaning you. The way I often think of it is, it's like rewriting bad code in your brain. Through sin, our brain is dysfunctional. We think wrongly. And that wrong thinking leads to wrong actions. And through reading God's word and seeing the truth of God's word, we see how we are not living in right accordance with God's word. And we turn away from that manner of living and that thinking and that Jesus makes us produce the fruits. He rewrites the code in our brain and we begin to understand true and right things and walk them out. God's word pruning us, cleaning up our divided and muddied affections, reforming our lives to the belief of his truth, shaping us into the image of Christ. This is why Christian community is so vital. It's one of the many blessings of church. As we gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we hear the word preached, we commend the gospel to one another, we pray together, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We are being connected to Christ and one another bearing the fruit of being his disciples, proving that we belong to Christ because we act like him, we think like him. Something Ephesians 2 describes as being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There are many well-meaning Christians today who are always chasing the mountaintop experience with the Lord. And God does mature us through those wonderful experiences. And I pray that you would have many of those. But can I tell you that many of us have learned the joy of steady state, day to day, week to week growth. Which comes from reading the Bible, praying, gathering with brothers and sisters and discipling. Hearing the word on the Lord's day. Celebrating the Lord's supper together. These are the normal means of grace that God uses to grow his vineyard. One day to the next may not seem like you're seeing a lot of fruit in your life. You may apply yourself to scripture, reading every day, praying every day, attending church every week, committing yourself to be faithful in servant teams and in living stones groups, and you may not see a lot of fruit week to week. But just remember, 99% of the meals that you've eaten, you don't remember them at all, but they've kept you alive. And 99% of the sermons you've heard, the communion meals you've shared, the living stones groups you've attended have kept you alive, even if you don't remember them as mountaintop experiences. These are just the regular means of God's grace that we should not neglect in our own lives. If you're like me, you expect too much out of one year of faithfulness and too little out of 10 years of faithfulness. The Lord's work is often slow work, but it is sweet and steady work 
And we have to remember that we live in time, but God lives in eternity. And when you're sovereign over all things, it seems to me time works differently for you. He's not bound by time like we are, not worried about it as we might be, never anxious that he might be late, because time for God is a tool that he bends to his will. And so we must train ourselves to wait, to be patient, to remain in Christ, and to abide in him. And then week after week will turn into month after month, will turn into year after year. And you'll look back in your journals and you'll see how God has carried you through using the regular means of grace. Oh, there may be occasional mountaintop experiences the Lord blesses you with. We pray for those. We love those. We're thankful when God gives them to us. But let's not neglect the regular day-to-day, slow and steady work of God's means of grace. Third point. Grapes on the vine. Verse 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love, Jesus says. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments, and I'm abiding in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So this is about joy. This isn't about like gritting your teeth and keeping commandments that you don't rather, you'd rather not. This is about your joy being full. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. We've heard that before, haven't we? Greater love is no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. And then verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Verses 9 through 11, I find them to be a fitting description of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Just consider verse 9 for a moment. As the Father has loved Jesus, Jesus has loved his disciples. Consider the profundity of that statement. The same love that God the Father has for God the Son, God the Son has for his people. What manner of love are we describing when we attempt to describe the love that God the Father has with God the Son? They've existed for, from before ages in unbroken fellowship with one another, delighting in one another. And that same quality of love, that same width of love, that same depth of love is the love that Jesus has for you. It's indescribable. Through keeping his commandments, we remain in that love. The Christian who is abiding in the love of Christ never approaches any situation from a place of emptiness, but fullness. So that when Jesus commands you to forgive one another as I have forgiven you, 
it's easy because we already know how much we've been forgiven of. So when Jesus asks us to be patient with one another, it's easy because we know how much God has been patient with us. A Christian is never entering any situation empty, needing to take from others in order to be full. A Christian never has to worry about protecting himself from being used or taken advantage of. Because when you're swimming in an ocean of Christ's love, what does it cost to give away a cup of that water, even when we know that that person may waste it? This is what it means to be free. This is the kind of freedom the world knows nothing of. Everything that the world does, it does for self-preservation and self-protection. But the Christian never has to do that, never has a need for that because his protection, her protection, her preservation is in Christ. It is unassailable. It is untouchable. And so she can walk into any situation full, not empty, not having to take from anyone in order to be full, but able to pour herself out into any situation. You see that all that the Lord does, his pruning, his cleansing, is for our joy. That the joy of Christ himself is in us. Full joy. Complete joy. A Christian who knows that kind of love in verse 9 must be the most joyful person on the planet. Unassailable in her joy. That joy is a source of infinite love that God the Father has for God the Son. That is a joy that would lead him to spend himself loving another. Christ has loved us patiently, steadily, at the cost of ourselves. It's a freeing joy knowing that you are not your own, you're not in control. Your situations are never accidental. You see this in verse 16, don't you? Jesus tells the disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. That's a perfect summary of this whole passage. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to bear fruit so that you would go and tell others about my love and that fruit would last and that God would be glorified and that anything you want, God will give you toward that endeavor. Notice how verse 16 and 17 are connected. The precious doctrine of election, which is that God chose us, we didn't choose him, drives Christian love. It removes the terms and conditions of our love. When you know that you have no right to be here, that you didn't earn this place that you're standing in, you're free to give love to those who are hard to love. You didn't earn a place on the team, and therefore you're banned from treating anyone as if they can't, they don't deserve to be on the team either. You're free to give forgiveness, even if you're being misused. You're free to give, expecting nothing in return. You're free to turn the other cheek because you know the one who heals wounds. 
If someone slaps you on one cheek, Jesus says, turn them to the other. I'll heal you. I got it. If someone wants to borrow, give it. Don't expect anything in return. The whole Sermon on the Mount hinges on this. Well, I could go on and on, but we're out of time. Suffice it to say this. God's people are chosen and appointed by Christ to bear lasting and God-glorifying, people-loving fruit through abiding in Christ. Amen? Please stand to your feet for the prayer of confession. Please pray with me. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the sweet, true vine of God, hear our prayers. You have blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. You've chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be blameless and holy. In Him, You predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of your will and to the praise of your glorious grace. Lord, we confess to you that we are a people weakened by our sin, divided in our affections, that we have so often recoiled from the blade of your loving hand as you have sought with careful grace to prune us We have sought to leave you. Lord, we have twisted your promises. We have ignored your discipline. We have felt the sting of your scissors and blamed the enemy. We ask you to forgive us. Father, we repent for having made peace with sin. We repent for having cared more for the things of this world than the things of God. We repent for neglecting to produce the fruits of your righteousness. For thinking that we own this body. We are in charge of this body. We own our will. We're in charge of our own will. We choose our own path. Forgive our arrogance, O Lord. We turn to Jesus this morning, the true vine. And we ask that you keep us connected to him. For we know that only through abiding in Jesus will we ever produce fruit. Would you enable us to know the joys of steady state faithfulness? Of entrusting ourselves to you through the regular means of grace, week after week, month after month, year after year. Father, for those of us here who have made little of discipleship in in your church, would you convict us and forgive us? And those of us who are spending ourselves in discipling one another, would you encourage and strengthen them? We pray all these things so that the Lord Jesus would get all that he paid for with his blood in this little church. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things.